0: John Muir. Hopefully, this name doesn't require much of an introduction to listeners of this podcast, but just in case there's a few of you that are yet to be acquainted. John Muir is a Scottish born environmentalist. He's a writer, he's an outdoorsman, and is considered to be the father of the US national parks and the founder of the Sierra Club. As a writer, he's probably one of the most quoted people on the planet. If you're looking to uh, for a quote to express your love for the outdoors, chances are that Google or ChatGPT will cough up a bunch of stuff by John Muir. Many are also familiar with the hiking trails left in his name, most significant, significantly the John Muir Trail, or the JMT for the trail connoisseurs, which stretches from the summit of Mount Whitney uh, to Yosemite Valley, California. While his name and writings are so well known around the world, not much is actually spoken about his life which is incredibly surprising considering the life that he had. From thousand mile walks before through-hiking was even a thing, to facing windstorms at the top of a 100-foot Douglas Spruce, to traveling the world, he definitely walked the walk. I'm certainly no expert on the subject of John Muir, and unfortunately, since his passing in 1914, John couldn't make it for the interview. But thankfully, we have the next best thing. Harold Wood Jr. is the co-founder and webmaster for the John Muir exhibit, which is a virtual museum dedicated to the life and legacy of John Muir. Harold knows John as if he's a brother, so there's nobody more suited to exploring his life than Harold. There's so much to learn about John Muir, far more than we could fit into this short episode. We mentioned books and other resources that you can check out to learn more. Okay this is the hiker podcast i am owen hamilton please enjoy my exploration of john muir with harold wood jr before we get into john Muir, let's talk about let's talk about yourself do you want to introduce yourself and what it is you do and i suppose your connection to john muir
1: well i started reading john muir when i was in junior high school as a kid and i just was enamored by his life Story, all the adventures he had, explorations he had in the wilderness, and his enthusiasm, his exuberance for for the beauty of nature, and that just struck me as you know, wow, this was just this is somebody I really wanted to to learn more about and to learn about what he was learning about. So you know, I I studied ecology and things like that at college, and you know, I just I always. I don't know. I celebrated his birthday every April, you know, <laughs> uh, and had birthday parties. And instead of my own birthday party, I'd invite friends over for John Muir's birthday and tell them they had to bring a passage of John Muir uh, to read as a uh, you know admission ticket. Uh, so in 1994, I had a friend who was working at the university creating a, a website. This was one of the first websites was before the internet went commercial. Uh, only universities in the military had what we know as the World Wide Web at that time. And so he said, well, you know, we are looking for doing some stuff at our information center for the environment. If you'll provide me with the content, I will do all the programming to get it up as a website. So we did that for two years. And then finally he kind of said, well, I'm moving on to other things now you're on your own. So I had to learn a little HTML uh, myself and uh, we converted the site over to the Sierra club to host it. And, uh, It's been going since that time, since the mid-90s. And uh, the John Muir exhibit website, we call it. I'm the volunteer webmaster. It now has hundreds and hundreds of pages uh, with all of John Muir's writings in it, lots of articles about Muir. I especially like to find the older articles that were written kind of during his time period, people who knew him personally, uh, lots of articles like that. And uh, just, you know, places he visited. I mean, it's just intriguing to me. That he you know traveled around the world, South America, Africa, India, you know, uh, Europe. He went to Ireland, uh, so he just kind of you know really explored uh, the world, always looking for the wilderness and big trees and the beauty of nature. He found it everywhere he went.
0: So let's paint a picture, a, a bit more of a picture of who John Muir was. You say he's an explorer, he's a writer, he's an environmentalist, and. Um, where, where, I suppose, where along his journey did this kind of awakening happening happen where he thought, I need to protect this world. I need to protect this. I need to be a steward of the land. Uh, where along his journey did that happen? Well,
1: it was probably, um, you know, it's been almost 10 years living in Yosemite. And then around, uh, you know, the 1880s, he got married, had a family, two children, Worked on his father-in-law's, you know, ranch, uh, raising fruit, and would go up to Yosemite once in a while. And but and he was writing about uh, his adventures and his explorations. So, uh, and an editor came and said, "I want you to show me firsthand." So they went up to Tuolumne Meadows around this late '80s, 1880s, <laughs> and Muir saw that the sheep had trampled and eaten all the beautiful wildflowers that were there, mm-hmm. and Turned that area into dust, these beautiful lush meadows that he'd remembered from ten years earlier, twenty years earlier. And then he, you know, he found out that, you know, um, sheepmen were setting fire to the forest in order to expand the meadows. And then, you know, loggers were coming in and cutting down trees. And, you know, he he, he didn't really know what to do. But this editor, Robert Underwood Johnson, was the editor of Century Magazine. And and he said, you know, Mr. Muir, if you will write an article about this, I will publish these in the Century Magazine and then I'll make sure every member of Congress gets a copy and we will work on getting a park established for Yosemite, uh, for the high country. The, the valley had already been a state park, uh, had given by the federal government as a state park in Yosemite Valley, and that wasn't much better. In fact, that was Muir really bemoaned the way that was being managed by the state at the time because it was lots of tourism there were cattle all over the meadows to feed you know to raise beef for the tourists for the, for the hotels and it was a mess and so but and they felt the high country was the first priority because that's where all the streams and you know the watershed came from So um, he partnered with Robert Underwood Johnson and was able to get Yosemite National Park established as a national park. Same time, the Sequoia area was being made into national parks. He was writing about the giant Sequoias and their threats. And uh, so he he really worked on that. Um, Shortly after the park was established, there was a... um, Real backlash from the loggers and the sheepmen and the cattlemen and the miners and wanting to shrink the boundaries of Yosemite. So that's when Muir got together with other like minded people and formed the Sierra Club, which was originally sort of a Yosemite Defense Association, but it's certainly expanded since then to protect the whole Sierra Nevada and later, you know, wilderness, wildlife everywhere. And of course, today, Big concern is climate change and and some of those global issues. So um, he was very instrumental in in getting that organization going. And uh, so that was something that I always was impressed by a person who in some ways was a regular person. I mean, he was a family man, he had children, he worked on a ranch, you know, but he had this talent for writing and he did that so well, and encouraged others to care about nature and the natural world and to protect it.
0: But I suppose before he was a, uh, I suppose in in modern terms, was a, a a regular man, you know, with a family, with a wife, and with a you know a job. He was he did kind of live a bit more of a a vagabond, a bit more of a kind of um, a wanderer. Uh, uh, he, where he, 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 he basically rambled into Yosemite um, Valley and lived there and kind of lived off of the land. And he, I think he, uh, he, sure. uh, he, was, he, 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 he ate bread and, and I think drank something like meat juice or something like that. Is there something?
1: No, he he would make, he would dry balls of flour and water in the sun yeah. and that would be his bread and he'd okay. have a bag of tea and, and and go off. He didn't need to eat that much. He was never, never, you know, that big of an eater. He wasn't a vegetarian. He would, he would eat meat and even mutton when he, when he had to, but
0: yes. you know, yeah.
1: he would go off to the wilderness and, and, you know, eating wasn't as important as, as filling up his spiritual food and his, his eyesight. So, yeah, I mean, you know, as a young man, I mean, he. He explored canada uh he worked in a in a, a broomstick factory there a rake handle factory he um explored wilderness there and he walked from uh indiana all the way to uh, florida a thousand mile walk wow. and um he got malaria down in florida so that was a problem it, it so instead of going to the tropics like he'd originally planned, he said, well, I'll take a little side trip to California before I go to the tropics. Well, it took, you know, 60 years before he made it to the tropics. <laughs> he just fell in love with Yosemite and Sierra Nevada. And yeah, at, when he was married and, you know, for the, for probably almost 10 years, he didn't do that much outdoor stuff. But then his wife told him, you know, you need to be writing these things, these messages to the world and you need to be telling people about these beauty of nature. And, and you can't do that if you've got the ranch to take care of. And you need the inspiration of, of the wilderness. Every time he would get sick in the, in, in the town, you know, in the, even though he lived in a rural area, um, he would find, you know, he'd go on these trips to Alaska and the bracing cold air would make him well again. Uh, so he, um, he really spent, a lot, a lot of people don't realize he spent quite a few trips to Alaska. And really uh, enjoyed that learning about the wildlife, the scenery, the native people there. He admired a great deal. Uh, just you know, uh, amazing. Um, you know, so he was able to do a lot of those things. Um, after his wife died, he did some some world traveling. Uh, you know, he went with a biologist on a trip around the world, and you know, so he he able able to do some of that stuff and. He made a good living on that ranch and was finally able, you know, after working hard for almost ten years, his wife said, "You know, I can continue managing the ranch. You need to, to relax now and do your other things." So it was it was great. He had a very um, understanding wife.
0: I would just want to interrupt really, really quickly to ask you to do me one quick favor. A lot of people listen to this podcast and now watch this podcast on YouTube. But we don't get a huge amount of comments or reviews uh, about you know what you like, what you don't like about the show. So if you have two seconds, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, pop a comment into the into the comment section, uh, leave us a review, give us a like, give us a share. If you're listening to this on any other platform, uh, on no Spotify, you can give us a review. Uh, it really helps this podcast get uh, seen and listened to by, by a lot more people. Um thank you so much again for all the support that you're giving to this podcast and to hiker and uh let's get back to the interview it's, it's i suppose it was a a blessing for him to find someone who was so uh accepting and know that this is the it, this man needs to be in the mountains this man needs to be in the wilderness for him to be complete um, wow. and it's, it's funny that, that you know only now uh, us as a civilization as a society are starting to realize the benefits of of, of spending ample time outdoors and you know nature ter- therapy is is now all the rage and you know doctors are prescribing people to go out and you know walk amongst the the, the trees or you know look look up at the stars you know to to to, to cure what ails you mm-hmm. Um, so uh like John Mer also had a relationship and uh, maybe not a relationship but he had a Somewhat of a, a a friendship or a partnership, even with um with Theodore Roosevelt, um one of the presidents of the United States, and he, they worked together on forming the National Parks Act in the United States. Um, was Yosemite the model for this? It was it was that the first park that this was set up on, and and yeah. how did that how did that sprawl out then?
1: That what what happened was Muir was planning to go on this trip with the the botanist Charles Sargent around the world, and he was supposed to meet him in New York and then continue on to Europe and do this round the world excursion, but President Roosevelt wrote wrote a letter to Muir and says I'm going to be in Yosemite, uh, you know this May, and I want to go with you in the back country, and I want to drop politics and just be with you because you you've written about nature. I want you to be my guide in in nature. So Muir kind of, it was sort of funny. It was sort of reluctant. You know, he tells the botanist, well, there's this important man in Washington who wants to eat me. So I guess I better, you know, <laughs> you know, invitation for the president of the United States. So he, he does do that. And the local dignitaries, um, you know, the local politicians were there trying to get Roosevelt to go to fancy dinners and do things. They said, nope, nope, nope. And he went off with just Muir and a park ranger and a couple of horses, and they went off for three days by themselves. And, um, you know, the, the ranger no, told us a lot about it, and Muir wrote about it, and he spent, they spent all this time like by the fireside talking about the issues. And, you know, Muir told Roosevelt about these These hoofed locusts he called the sheep, you know, hoofed locusts were destroying the high country and it needed to be, you know, better protected. So even though they'd been national park, the the state was still mismanaging the Yosemite Valley. He had to work on this in a couple of years. You know, it wasn't until 1905 that the state park part, Yosemite Valley, got added to the national park so it could be better managed. And uh, so... um, he also talked with Roosevelt about preserving forest areas throughout the United States. Hmm. Uh, and he had been on a, on a kind of a guest on a forestry commission that was studying the different forest areas throughout the, the Western U S especially. And he encouraged Roosevelt to establish those forest reserves, which later became our national forests. So it's not only national parks. He also wanted the national forests uh, to be you know protected. and. You know maybe not the same management exactly but you know to be protected from just the the people who just go in and take everything and leave you know it, it yeah. needs to be uh you know protected so um so he they did have a correspondence after that time they really you know admired each other uh, you know, roosevelt and, and muir so I,
0: I, I suppose as an environmentalist then if john muir was still around today and seeing all the different environmental issues that we're going through like I suppose, what could he take from back in his day back uh, when he was forming the national parks to today like how would he address some of the issues that we're seeing today
1: well you know in muir's time it was these influential magazines and newspapers that were the way things were spread you know people anyone who was anybody who had any influence would read these these uh, monthly magazines. Would read the important newspapers. That's how the message got out. If Muir was here today, I think he'd be using podcasts and YouTube and, and social media and, and you know our current methods of getting the messages out. And uh, you know just the, the technology may have changed, but I think the message is pretty much the same. I mean, one of the things that I've learned. Um, as an environmentalist, is you know, fighting climate change is not just about, you know, encouraging renewable energy, but it's also about protecting the natural world. You know, they've, they've done studies that, uh, you know, natural regenerating forests, you know, uh, it re- brings a lot of the carbon dioxide back into the ground, and you know, it's sequesters it into the soil. So. You know, your message is still relevant. We need wilderness and forests and wildlife protected for the modern reasons as well as for the practical reasons of, of uh, you know, not having all of our natural resources wasted.
0: Okay, so this is a hiking podcast. So that this we 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 talk m- mainly to hikers about hiking trails, about hiking experiences. John Muir was a hiker. You know, he at the uh, uh, at some level he was a hiker. Sure, he hiked a thousand miles. uh, You might say, and he hiked through the Yosemite wilderness. um, And he's he's left a bit of a legacy in with his name on some trails as well, um, namely. The, the genre, mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the kind of other hiking uh, experiences that he had or it, adventures that he would have had that would be quite notable well, you know
1: I, I wanted to read a passage to you from from your on, on this issue uh, he was he was legendary i mean one of his books he talked about well, it's not that far to go up to, you know, Cloud's Rest. You just, it's like 14 miles up and then you can run back and, you know, and then you'll still have time to do more things. During, you know, So he, he could really do the distances. But as he became older and wiser, he started looking at things differently. And I have this little quick, quick story I wanted to read to you. It's from a, a, a Sierra Club friend of his that went hiking with him. And uh, this guy's name was Albert Palmer. So this is a firsthand account. Uh, he said he was going on one of these Sierra Club outings. John Muir was on the outing along with other uh, the other people from the Sierra Club. And, um, and, and Mr. Palmer said, well, one day I was resting in the shade. Mr. Muir overtook me on the trail and began to chat in that friendly way in which he delights to talk with everyone he meets. I said to him... Mr. Muir, someone told me you did not approve of the word hike. Is that so? His blue eyes flashed, and with his Scotch accent, he replied, I don't like either the word or the thing. People ought to saunter in the wilderness, not hike. Do you know the origin of that word saunter? It's a beautiful word. Way back in the Middle Ages, people used to go on pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and when people in the villages through which they passed asked where they were going, they would reply, à la Saint-Terre, to the Holy Land. And so they became known as santerers or saunterers. Now, these mountains are our Holy Land, and we ought to saunter through them reverently, not hike through them. <laughs> So oh, I'm gonna
0: have to change the name of the podcast to the Saunter Podcast. <laughs> I
1: saw that some of your yes, I saw some of your uh, recent podcasts. People, you know, doing uh, 28 peaks in 28 days, and and, and we know people in the John Muir Trail and and in Ireland that are famous for having the fastest known record hike yeah. through. That's very popular today. This that kind of hiking, but you know, Mr. Palmer said that Muir lived up to that doctrine. When he was on these hikes, he never hurried. He was always the last one in camp because he would be stopping. He would stop and see a flower and he'd sit down and talk to the flower for an hour. You know, he was not going to rush through it. And uh, so Mr. Palmer, you know, says from this, you know, it's a parable to him about living life. You know, mm-hmm. stop and smell the roses in life, too, not just hiking. Uh, so um, I always had a lot of inspiration from that. Um uh, I've always been that saunterer kind of hiker. You know, I used to go with a hiking club up in Washington state and, you know, they would, they would actually look at their watch and say, okay, we're going to march for, for 30 minutes. And then we're stopping by the clock, five minutes rest. And then we're going again up, you know, and I did that a few times. And I said this isn't for me i want to stop and take a picture i want to stop and look at this fungi growing out of this wood i want to get down on my hands and knees to look at this little flower i want to stop and look at the scenery and just take in the peace and the beauty so even as a younger person now that i'm older you know i love doing that i just um you don't have to hike far hike ta- taunter far to you know really go to a place where you can just sit down and take it all in and if you observe nature reverently and intently, the way Muir did, you know I, I remember times that I would sit by a canyon and just reflect on all the things that are going on in that world—the you know, stream coming through, the wind braving, the, all the different kinds of plants that are there, the different animals that would live amongst those plants, the forests and the trees and the shrubbery it's a complex interconnected ecosystem it's a wonder of nature i mean the wonders of nature are you know they're more interesting than any television show if you really want to mm-hmm. study it and learn about it but if you just look at it and go oh you know nice view keep going you're you're not going to see it you're not going to learn about it so for me being in the outdoors it's not about getting from point a to point b in the fastest time it's what can you see along the way how many animals can you see on that trail uh that's a good good hike if you you see you know more than the usual number of animals so yeah uh,
0: it's it's funny because the word hike it has been kind of um Uh, yeah it's 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 come into a lot of different uh, countries and some people definitely put their hands up and say no we don't want that word like in in australia they they use the word bushwalking or in new zealand tramping is the is the word Mm -hmm. here in ireland and in in the uk it's just walking or hill walking um and it's actually i i i I know john roer is from originally from scotland um but as a kind of a, an American hero, I, I wasn't expecting him to actually put his hand up and say, "No, it's not a hike." Um, and <laughs> it does remind me of that. Of, I can't remember where the, the the saying comes from, but it was in a book I read recently. You know, the saying is, "Stop and smell the roses, not run through the field and smell as many as you can." <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, like it, it, it goes to show he. That's why he went out into the wild. It wasn't to go and hike, you know, or saunter, or go up and climb the highest peak at the, at the fastest he could. It was to immerse himself and not in in nature, and that's why he's had a greater appreciation for not for for nature.
1: And, and I it think wasn't most- because he couldn't do it physically. I mean, you know, some mm-hmm. of these stories, oh, yeah. you know, he would he would climb a mountain just like anyone else. You know, get up at three o'clock in the morning and be halfway up the morning be up the mountain before dawn because it took that long to get to the top and back safely. So uh he could do it, but he just didn't, you know, want to do it. Well, <laughs> he also he was- did, like he was
0: no he was no stranger to challenge now as well, because uh, he he did some crazy stuff. like I remember he uh, I read that he uh, he climbed a tree in in a in a storm, and, and and weathered the storm in the tree, you know just to just to feel that. Well, the people, the, uh, the well,
1: they're imagining rain and and lightning going around. He wasn't that he wasn't stupid. He wasn't going to climb a tree during lightning storm. It was a wind storm, and uh, wind was just going everywhere. so yes, he wrote this very beautiful passage about writing there and how you know trees are travelers in their own way, even though they're not going far, they're swaying back and forth. So yeah, he had a way of really looking. I mean he's famous for all the big things, you know, his descriptions of the grand domes and, you know, Tisiac and Half Dome and El Capitan. He's famous for those, but he wrote so many things about insect uh, tra- trails through the soil, just observing the insect trails and little tiny things to interested him as well as the big things so there's everything in nature was an inspiration to him and he just he found it a doorway to god i think is the way he always looked at it
0: yeah i do remember him saying at one point that you know this is our cathedral you know that especially yosemite valley uh, like that and when you see tunnel view for the first time you can see what he means you're yes. just looking at these towering peaks and saying this is a cathedral, you know, this is nature's cathedral, and we're we're all going to service now. Yeah, it's it's a it's a beautiful place to be. Yes. Um. So uh, with later in life, then he 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 traveled a lot more, so he got to see a little bit more of the world. And he mentioned that he came to Ireland at one point And uh, and did he go back to his home country of Scotland as well? Did he uh, revisit yes, Scotland? I think
1: it might have been the same trip. It was actually couple of times, 1893 he did a visit back to Scotland. He did another time uh, as well, I believe. Uh, he went back to his hometown of Dunbar, Scotland where he had been born and reconnected with some of his cousins and uh, you know family members. and you know by then he had made pretty good money, but he saw that some of the people in Dunbar were were kind of poor. So he set up things he sent to one of his cousins, you know, a certain amount of money every year and says, please distribute this amongst the poor people in Dunbar. You know, he's not only environmentalists, he cared about, you know, the poverty. He saw you know, I have my own hometown. I need to, to help what I can. And so, um, he, he did enjoy going along there. It was probably his boyhood climbing around on the old crumbling Dunbar castle that, you know, made him become a mountain climber <laughs> as a, as an adult, because, you know, that was a challenge. And, um, his first exposures to nature were, were in that Scottish countryside. Uh, so um, he, uh, you know, from boyhood, you know, was interested in that. And then, uh, you know, his family moved to, emigrated to Wisconsin and, uh, you know, he grew up on the farm there, but it was a pretty wild uh, forested area. I was lucky. I've been both to Dunbar and to his boyhood home in, um, in, in Wisconsin and uh both are pretty interesting places uh to visit Uh, if you have a chance to go to dunbar the uh the 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 john muir birthplace uh, museum there now is very good uh museum like telling everyone about his life and um it's good to see that probably until the 60s people in scotland and dunbar didn't know who john muir was And, and now since then You know, they've been reclaiming, uh, Scotland has been reclaiming Muir as the son of their their own, uh, which he was. He was born there, even though he came to the United States at 11 years old. But uh, the story is, you know, whenever he'd get excited or wanted to make an effect, he he would kind of launch into the Scotch brogue. And, uh, you know, he he could speak more American usually, but but he could do it uh, if he wanted to. (laughs)
0: Yeah, usually the 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 Irish and the Scottish accents are, are the ones that get attention, uh, when, especially when you're trying to tell a story or get you know get someone's attention. You just you stick on the accent and people people tune in. And, and, and does he? Uh, 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 I'm not sure about this, but there, there is also a trail, a hiking trail in Scotland called the John Muir Way. Yes, right? is that in, any connection to? his, uh, to him, I uh, know it was obviously named after him. but well, yeah, they, him? They, named,
1: they named it for him. Um, you know, because again, I think Muir has been seen as real inspiration for, you know, getting into the outdoors, appreciating the outdoors, learning about the outdoors and then protecting the outdoors. So um, the, the people who created that trail, you know, the Eastern end is, is actually the Muir birthplace house. And you can get a little passport as you go along at different places. And then the, the the Western part is, is I believe at the city that was the port where his family emigrated to the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, that's, you know, West of West of Glasgow. So, you know, that's kind of that route. I don't know that he knew that route particularly except for right around his hometown, but uh, it was named for him in appreciation uh, for his, his uh encouragement of the outdoors
0: so it, I guess that so we already asked about what he would say or do from an environmental point of view um if he was around today if he was around today is there any part of the world or is there any kind of adventure that he, you think that he would do was there anything unfinished uh, for John muir
1: well I think the biggest unfinished thing would be you know his one biggest loss as an environmentalist was when Hetch Hetchy Valley that was then part of the Yosemite National Park was dammed for a reservoir. And he fought that tooth and nail for over a dozen years. And it kind of broke his heart when when he lost at that. And, um, you know, he believed there were alternate sources for san francisco to use and they might have been a little more expensive but uh you know the city saw it as an efficient way to do it and it and it was like any kind of big campaign like that there's always a silver lining you know the silver lining was they they lost that valley it's tragedy because it was you know one of the early national parks there had not really been any precedent for you know, doing things like building dams in national parks. Oh, well, why not? Well, but then there was enough of a backlash after that. Even some of the supporters of the dam said, well, you know, this was a one-time thing. We need to make sure our other national parks don't get destroyed. That's the whole point of them. And they were then instigators of creating the National Park Service, which is something Muir worked for You know, much of his life it didn't happen until after his death, but he had worked toward getting that National Park Service established. Uh, and it was his protege, Is uh, you know, Stephen Mather had gone hiking with Muir and was a Sierra Club member, and, and he's the one that, you know, wrote wrote to the president that said we need to get this park service established and you know, in order to, to really safeguard our, our areas. So that was the silver lane that was positive. There is a movement today to restore Hetch Hetchy. There's been studies done that show um, that the dam could be removed, the water could be moved downstream and still provide water to the city of San Francisco. We've learned a lot more about groundwater storage now. It doesn't have to be surface water where it all evaporates. Uh, There's multiple other places that it could be. There's some existing reservoirs downstream. That uh, are many times larger. It's used largely for agricultural water, but you know, with filtering, it could become uh, water dr- for drinkable water. So um, there is that movement, and I think you know the people who are advocating that. I was one of the co-founders of the group called Restore Hetch Hetchy, and you know, I, our feeling was maybe it'll take a hundred years. So what? You know, conservation battles often take decades. I mean, we're always amazed. I mean, the Wilderness Act took eight years of lobbying and difficulty. Other areas for wilderness protection I've worked on have taken 10, 15, 20 years. And some things are still not done. I've worked on wilderness proposals back in the 80s that still haven't happened, you know. So, but we're not giving up. We just don't give up. <laughs> and that's one of the things I found about many environmentalists. I've gone to public hearings. And the people who have a financial interest, who are posing the protection of nature, they do say their piece and they leave. And we environmentalists would stay to the bitter end. And so often you see, you know, the early part speakers are all against some, some things like a wilderness protection bill. And then the people at the end would all be in favor of it because, because we care about it more than just monetarily. We care about it spiritually so um and we see it as a legacy that's long term so yeah i think muir would work on trying to restore Chechi. and yeah it may take 100 years before we get enlightened enough to figure out how to do it they say it costs too much uh, but if you look at the cost of some of the public works things i was reading about the cost of one of these cloverleaf freeways you know where two freeways come together we have these big clover leaves billions of dollars well, if we can do it for a freeway, we certainly can do it to preserve a wonder of nature for the future, especially in a place like that's where it's, it's needed. I and mean, I'd love to see Hetch Hetchy Valley restored in a way that it doesn't repeat the mistakes that happened in Yosemite Valley. So we didn't have all the overcrowding, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all the vehicles and the, and the hotels and businesses and things going on. Uh, it could be a more natural area and people would see what it looked like. You know, it, Muir said it was to him Yosemite's twin. You know, it didn't have quite a spectacular of of the cliffs, but mm-hmm. it still had beautiful waterfalls, beautiful forests and meadows and winding river, um, full of wildlife. You know, it was a beautiful place. And now it's kind of a water tank. You know, there's still some beauty around it, but um it's uh it's still basically a water tank. So um It's something I think he would care about. And the way I look at it is restoring Hachechi would almost be symbolic for saying this is the start of not only restoring Hachechi, but restoring the earth everywhere Mm -hmm. that it's been plundered and raped and screwed up. You know, work as restoring restoration could be a major thing for you know, we're kind of beyond the area where, and we've protected many areas already. But now yeah. we need to do more to restore things like like wildlife corridors. That, you know, you can't have one protected habitat over here, another protected habitat over there, and then have a big city and roads and stuff in between. They have no way for the animals to get back and forth. So
0: mm-hmm. one of the
1: things I really like here where I live, there's a, an actual bridge over a major road called it's a wildlife bridge that allows the animals to get across safely without getting hit by cars and trucks. So uh and it helps the cars and trucks too, because they they get damaged if they hit a deer. So um there's a lot of things like that, the restoration of the earth that I, I think Muir would really want to be involved in and want to encourage us to do.
0: So if anybody uh, I suppose listen to this and didn't know who John Muir was beforehand, uh you know, I'd be very surprised if 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 that was the case. If they wanted to kind of start their journey of learning a bit more uh, beyond this podcast about John John Muir, books. Uh, I know, like I, I've actually only just recently picked up uh, my first uh, summer in, in 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 the Sierras. Uh, haven't started it yet, um, but I've 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 read a lot of it in parts, so I can't wait to actually string it all together in one part. But is there any other books, any other writings? Uh, your website uh, where people can go to learn.
1: Well, one book I really recommend. First of all, you know, y- Ymir did write over a dozen books, and and My First Summer is one of the most beautiful. Uh, his story about my boyhood and youth is also really interesting about you know growing up in Scotland and Wisconsin. Um, some of his other writings, by today's standards. They're long winded, they're kind of Victorian language. Some people won't relate well to some of the enthusiasm that he had and the minutiae he would describe. He always used scientific terms, but also poetic terms. So his writing's beautiful. But for modern ears, we're so used to reading things quickly that uh, what I recommend is a book called The Wilderness World of John Muir, edited by Edwin Way Teal. And it's an older book. It was actually published in the 1950s, but it's still in print, The Wilderness World of John Muir. And it's an anthology of Muir's best writings and most accessible writings. So the first part is an introduction that's fairly long that kind of tells John Muir's life story and then uh, starts having Muir's actual writings with excerpts from some of his best writings. And then the editor strings these together. So you realize it's kind of like a biography because then you you realize, okay, now we're, now we're going from California to Alaska. And, you know, so you understand it's not just random. So mm-hmm. it's a beautifully organized book for that reason. And then the last chapter is kind of the philosophy of John Muir, where it has a lot of his most inspirational writings, about nature, uh, and the wilderness and the beauties of, of the world. So, um, that's the book I always recommend to read first. Wilderness World with John Muir by Edwin Teal And then if you get excited like I did when I read that book, when I was a teenager, uh, then the John Muir exhibit website, there's another site, johnmuir.org that has a lot of information about, uh, about, uh, Muir and, uh, your writings about him, I think, are just as interesting as his own writings because he never talked about himself that much. But his mm-hmm. own life, such a inspiration for me to be someone who did spend so much time in the outdoors, and yet was able to have kind of a normal family life and have a job too, um, you know, self employed, and you know, was able to retire early in order to keep going into the natural areas and the wilderness areas. So he had this adventure, this this inspiration, but he also had this feeling of of a mission, I guess, a purpose in life to preserve the areas that he found so beautiful. And that's what people need is, you know, you need to feel part of something meaningful. And that's what he really led us to do, uh, in terms of saying, we live in this great big world and let's take care of it
0: yeah and i think that's definitely something that people are 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 becoming a lot more aware of now is is getting more people outdoors so that they can witness these things themselves and feel that connection to the to to the earth and therefore treat it better and treat each other better as well Um, and i think that's definitely something that uh, john murrow would agree with well, Harold, um, uh, I, I definitely could sit here all day, and we'll talk about everything to do with with uh, with Jan Muir and and everything he's done with his life. It's just, it's it's actually quite astonishing to hear that he never really spoke about himself all that much, even though he's done accomplished so much. Uh, but he has, uh, you know, as you said, he has quite a few books that people can get into. Um, Uh, And if people want to step it up a notch, they can go and hike the John Muir Way and then go over to California and do the John Muir Trail then afterwards as well and visit his his, uh, birthplaces. But thank you so much for coming on and and educating me and uh, hopefully educating some of our audience as well. Um, And yeah, uh, hopefully you can come back to Ireland at some point or uh,
1: experience some of the, the hiking trails that we have over here. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thanks, Harold. Thanks again to Harold for educating me and hopefully some of you on the life and legacy of John Muir. And thank you for listening in. As I mentioned earlier, if you liked this episode of the podcast, please consider subscribing to hear more. Leave us a review or a comment and maybe share it with a friend that might like it. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Hiker Podcast. Until then, happy trails.